This book is about the middle class, more specifically the professional middle class and its journey, intellectual, political, and moral, from the 60s to the 80s. Even the names of these decades seem to tell a story, one that begins with a mood of generosity and optimism and ends with cynicism and narrowing self-interest. And that, in the largest sense, is the theme of this book, the retreat from liberalism and the rise in the professional middle class of a meaner, more selfish outlook, hostile to the aspirations of those less fortunate. It's a very provocative paragraph. It's the opening one of a book read by the author, Barbara Ehrenreich, Fear of Falling, in the subtitle, The Inner Life of the Middle Class and Pantheon of the Publishers. And that opening, Barbara Ehrenreich, by the written some very powerful articles and works in previous books dealing with the uh, life, <laughs> life in our society from various points of view. And more often than not from those looking up rather than those looking down. Now I was thinking, we hear the phrase middle class and the myths about it. The very beginning starts, you start with a challenge right off the bat. And once upon a, that which we call the middle class had a sort of uh, enlightened from your point of view or mine, outlook, open to the conditions of those who were up against it and how they become more narrow and more me in focus. This is your pretty much the theme and how it came to be. Yes, I and mean, if you think about it, in the, in the 60s, um, there was a confidence that something could be done about social problems. The professional middle class, the white-collar middle class, really believed that poverty could be ended almost overnight and that it would, uh, would just, it would take a little effort, we could get on to other problems. That seems silly, but the, my point is that there really was more of an optimism, which I think has, has gone away. Well, perhaps we could uh, talk about that, how that came to be and what's to be done, the old, the old question. Right off the bat, the way, there are certain myths that you seek to demolish, myths as to what is a middle class, or, or what is, the, you know, the phrase working class is a European phrase. It's hardly used in the United States. I mean, it hasn't been since Henry Ford invented the Model T. You know that. Uh, the phrase is hardly used here. Well, but we sort of, we know intuitively that there is a, a distinction. I mean, we're all given this word yeah. middle class. That's supposed to be everybody except uh, Leona Helmsley and, you know, some yeah. people sleeping on the streets. That's too vague. But I think we all make a distinction in our minds. We know that there are some people who are professionals, who are doctors, lawyers, business executives, and that their lives are really different from those people who are in a blue or pink collar working class. We may not have the vocabulary, yeah. but we know it. But I mean, even our language is affected, is what, what I meant. That generally, someone who's blue collar work speaks of himself as lower middle class, middle class or lower, the daughter of a sanitation worker, which is euphemism for a man who collects garbage, which is mm -hmm. terribly important, vital as a matter of fact, speaks of herself. And I said, didn't you come from a working class background? She said, I beg your pardon? <laughs> you see, middle class. But I so think one forth. of the reasons for that, Studs, is that working class occupations do not get a lot of respect in our society. And people hesitate to say, oh, yes, I'm working class, because it sounds like... Um, well, you're a loser. You know, it could be interpreted. Why aren't you, you know, why aren't you driving a BMW? Why aren't you sitting behind a big desk? We, we have our, our values so inverted that we don't give 
a lot of honor, respect to those who actually do the work in and our society. And also you are less literate, too, of course. You are looked down upon. You point out that you once heard E.L. Doctorow talk about that very point and novels, didn't well, you? Well, I'm a big novel reader myself, but Doctorow made a very interesting point. He's a novelist. He said that our uh, culture is so limited and our fiction is even so limited that we're we're just we're continually reading about the the intimate relationships of people uh, who have at least two homes, you know, summer home and a condo in the city, and so on. And then what he said was that when we do get a book that's about so-called ordinary people or blue-collar people, or uh, that it's usually branded by the critics as quote political, that it must have some political intent, and therefore it isn't really art. That's funny. If something is used about that group that hardly makes it, except in caricature, will come about the caricatures. It, it makes it, say, in the movies you talked about, Joe, uh, the, the hard hat who is equated to being a racist, narrow, hawk, this, or, or uh, a deer hunter, or, or, an, or a taxi driver. Mm -hmm. You point that out, don't you? That a the, stereotype that is very... Demeaning. It's a stereotype, in this case, of white, blue-collar men who are shown as being, well, silly, uh, childish, macho, uh, ignorant, and bigoted, and violent in the case of uh, Joe. At the time that's going on, those films and the stereotype, in your book, Barbara Ehrenreich is my guest, and the book is called Fear of Falling, subtitle Inner Life of the Middle Class, the Professional Middle Class, at that time of the stereotype, being part of a very culture and language, you point out there were more strikes and more militancy yeah, among working people than in a long, ever since the New Deal days. That was going on, but that hardly made the news. Well, this was, you know, this is what's so frustrating. You could see that we, in the late 60s and early 70s, had this huge strike wave covering almost every kind of worker. It was hospital workers, it was Teamsters, it was... Uh, dock workers, but the stereotype was of this bigoted individual, the, the Joe type, the uh, Robert De Niro and taxi driver, who is totally isolated is in, in his own right-wing opinions. I was even amused to read Time magazine did finally have a story on the strike wave in, in about 1972. They did report some on that, but they clung to the stereotype so much that what they used as an illustration to the article was a picture of Joe, the movie character, not a picture of a real-life yeah. worker, not a, a, someone on a picket line. They couldn't give yeah. up the image. That's very funny. So they use the, the very image they create as the reality. Yeah. yeah. Slapping that on to Who the reality. Who is they? Now we come to the middle class we're talking mm -hmm. about, because this is about a certain group. Who, who, who is... Or are, is, are they? Okay, they. Uh, the professional middle class is, well, the white-collar professionals. By the most broadest estimate, it would be about 20% of the population, but that's awfully broad. It, this is the social class that interested me because this is a social class that contains our um, pundits and our commentators and our opinion makers and our professors and our so-called experts on a range of subject. So this is the group that yeah. is likely to be telling us how to think about other things. So I said, well, it's time to turn the tables and look at this group and psychoanalyze them a little bit. 
and they <clears throat> are the opinion molders then, pretty uh, yep. much. Well, if you, uh, if you turn on TV on a Sunday morning, you'll see uh, on a public affairs talk show a lineup of so-called experts. They'll all be white men, so rarely an exception to that. They'll all be well-dressed, very well-paid, comfortable guys. They'll usually be quite conservative, and they'll be talking about, they'll talk about the minimum wage. They'll talk about uh, being on welfare, things they know nothing yeah. about. And now who are they who are not on? Now you come to discoveries. We always hear about the deserving or the undeserving <coughs> poor through the years. <laughs> deserving and un poor, this is an abstraction, is it not? It's they. It's y they out there. And you say there was a discovery. <laughs> We're talking about Michael Harrington's book in the early 60s and a bit before. Well, I think the amazing thing if you think about it, is that there was a, quote, discovery of poverty at all. This is in 1963-64. Uh, Michael Harrington's book played a role, but there were many other things feeding into it. The news magazines made this a cover story. Suddenly they discovered a group amounting to about one-fifth of the American population that nobody had ever suspected existed before. Now, what I think that shows is how insular uh, our professional middle class is, how blinded it is to the realities of, in, in our nation. To have to discover yeah. how. No, well, what happened, now, now we come to uh, various attempts, seems political attempts to assuage a situation here and things are going on. We suddenly discover millions, as now we know there are millions homeless and also, what I like about your book, it touches areas seldom touched Working people, those who are not called the poor, or some call lower middle class, and the difficult time they're having right now. Now yeah. that's the yeah. group that has that's a group which has been doing very poorly um, since well since the late 70s, but especially in the Reagan years. Uh, the blue and pink collar working class has taken a beating, losing jobs, losing ground in terms of wages. Uh, this has to do with a more intense union busting on the part of employee, employers, uh, with the weakening of the National Labor Relations Board under Reagan, and with um, tax policies that benefited the very wealthy and hurt uh, a lot of other oh, people. It's funny, as there's more facts coming out, not so much knowledge, but facts from the early 60s on and the civil rights movement and uh, quote-unquote war against poverty, at the same time, less, less of a feeling of some sort of coalition. They're split one from the other, it seems. This is what has come out during the years we're talking about, the split of the blue collar as against the, uh, the outsiders, completely the poor or the blacks. And that's what we're talking about too, aren't we? And y your book mm -hmm. deals with a possible, hopefully possible coalition. Yes, so I, I would say to some extent that's been exaggerated, that split. I mean, I think it's comforting to uh, professional middle-class people to look at uh, blue-collar folks and say, well, they're the bigots, they're, they're the ones who are the problem. Uh, for example, um, there's a lot, a lot of uh, outrage recently about the uh, murder of a young black man in Bensonhurst in New York, where I come from. And uh, this turns into a lot of commentary about what's wrong with these white working class people. 
I don't see anything like, like that kind of commentary as we had in the last two years, a series of uh, incidents of racial harassment on college campuses, including very elite college campuses. Then it becomes it's a problem of youth, not a problem of this particular class that can afford to go to those colleges. By the way, that you just hit the word class. I've been so far I've avoided talking about it. your book is about class, and you describe it in the beginning as, you know, D. H. Lawrence spoke of sex as a dirty little secret. You see, the dirty little secret, or I would say dirty big secret, is class in the United States. We've never accepted that as a reality. I, I think we're, we have a hard time with the subject of class. I think P Americans are a lot more savvy about racial and sex differences, or at least we know that there's a problem of racism, problem of sexism. The existence of class is hard to acknowledge, and then the whole area of class prejudice, I just don't think we've begun to think about. That's why one of the reasons I wrote this book, that, that uh, there is class prejudice on the part of those people who do dominate but our culture. But there's not even the existence of class, because we say we're a classless society. There isn't a thing as class. We know in England there's class by virtue of background or accent there. But here we, but it's there quite obviously is the fact that the word working class is hardly used here. Mm -hmm. That would be mean you're, you're acquainted with the idea of class if you use that phrase. Now, so this is one of the myths we live by. That's the big myth you're, you're demolishing. Yeah, well in the 1950s that was the official dogma. America's a classless society and if you said differently you might be accused of being a communist. Ironically if you were in the Soviet Union and said there were classes in that society you would be in trouble uh, too. Uh, <laughs> it, it's a, a taboo all over. So this is one of the aspects we're, we're talking about, uh, the, the idea that, that language and myth play a tremendous role in our not facing truth, but a bit of it's now coming, coming through. Well, I don't think this is a reality that can be evaded yeah. forever because we are becoming so much more unequal in terms of class as a society. The, the rich are getting richer, the poor are getting poorer, and the, the people in the middle are actually being stretched apart too, with the blue and pink collar people sliding downwards, as I mentioned, economically, yeah. losing ground, and that professional two collar, I mean, yeah. I mean white collar, you know, two income couple know, doing as, very as well. You, as you say that, we, we see the statistics make front page, more people employed than ever but the part that's not mentioned is the part you're just touching on. The steel mill is closed, and so the guy working the open hearth getting 15 bucks an hour is now pumping gas at four bucks an hour. He's newly employed because he got that job pumping gas. So that's what you're talking about. That real wage have taken a real bump. Sure, well but that's counted as uh, you yeah. know full employment yeah. or high unemployment. Yeah. Uh -huh. So we have to come to the whole matter of stereotype we just touched on before and uh, an attitude toward those we call the poor. And throughout your book, and also the feminist movement, the role of that in it too, in the various movements of the 60s too. The book, it's a very thoughtful one and a provocative one, it's called Fear of Falling in the Life of the Middle Class and Pantheon, I'm happy to say, are the publishers. And whether it's Christopher Lash or Francis Fitzgerald or Todd Gettlin, they speak of this book as the word continuously appears illuminating and witty and full of insights. A fear of falling. It's the stereotype again. 
the stereotype of, of the poor, of the blue-collar middle class, the blue-collar stereotype. The word hard hat came into being as being equivalent to the racist, the hawk, the macho guy, the Rambo, as the word redneck, a word, by the way, I dislike. I think redneck is a word I would avoid. I know you use mm -hmm. it on occasion. I do, of course, the neck of the white guy working stoop labor in the South because he bent in the sun made it red. Oh, yeah. <coughs> no, I, I agree. I'd avoid that word as no, a pejorative it's a, it's a word. It's a class slur, I think, yeah. too, it, it, and um, very much like hard hat. Yeah, and so that <coughs> came into being. Mm -hmm. Following, I suppose the Cold War plays a role here too. Following World War Two. Well, but the, these these stereotypes of the working class really take hold uh, right around 1968-69. Uh, as far as I can see, mostly because of George Wallace. In his '68 campaign, he initially seemed to have a lot of support from blue-collar working class people. And it did, that evaporated most of it in the voting booth. But that was the um, signal to the media that, that there was something wrong, there was something afoot. Uh, they didn't look at the fact that uh, the same people who supported, said they would support Wallace in the summer of 68, probably would have voted for Robert Kennedy before many of them said they would, that it was, it was confused, that loyalty. <clears throat> but that became the excuse for the stereotype. But it's, it's not uh, Wallace being the reason, Wallace being the symptom, because why they went for why, now you come to the bitterness and the anger, the hidden stuff that's there. Who are the ones chosen to go to Vietnam, as you point out? Who are the marginal, the people on the margin when the neighborhood's changing? Mm -hmm. You'll point that out. Yeah, yeah it's, it's certainly not the um, young Cornell student or a Harvard student. But there was something else that, that George Wallace was playing on. Um, certainly he represented racism, that was his image, but what he talked about, what he actually talked about was anger at this professional middle class. And he, he understood that working class people are resentful. Uh, and he talked about these, you know, pointy-headed bureaucrats. Maybe you can remember some of his <laughs> things he said as well, uh, better than I can. But, you know, he was trying, he had the sense to mobilize a kind of class resentment. Um, uh, not to a good purpose as far as I'm concerned, but at least he picked up yeah. on that. Yeah, sort of ersatz populist kind yeah. of thing. So we come to... Talking about uh, using that, the word backlash used a lot when it comes to blue collars, backlash as against, say, a civil rights movement. <clears throat> Another kind of backlash occurred after the 60s and the student rebellions, along with the civil rights movement, came what you call in an intellectual backlash. This is rather fascinating, leading to a whole new movement called neoconservatism. Yeah, I think the important backlash in the in the late 60s was not a blue-collar one. As I, you know, <clears throat> we were pointing out the blue-collar people were in, in a strike wave, uh, but from the intellectual elite of the professional middle class, the professors uh, in particular, many of whom were just um, horrified by the student movement. I have to tell you, I did not expect to find this when I started working on this book, mm -hmm. uh, but the extent to which uh, the professors and various uh, pundits mobilized themselves and began to become right-wing right at that point because they saw their own interests threatened when the university was criticized and demonstrated against by students. 
Please. I'm, I'm thinking about some of the books and, and the use of the phrase, by the way, as these same ones who felt that was had a certain view of society to begin with anyway, like Edward Banfield, the book called, uh, what was it called? The Social, Unheavenly City. The Unheavenly Dealing, and mm -hmm. I like the word lower class is very often is used. They speak of working class or those who are obviously poor. Lower class. <laughs> that in itself is an editorial oh, yeah. comment. <laughs> yeah, it implies a, a clear moral hierarchy of some sort. And I was thinking about the, um, you can take off at will, you know, you, but I, I'm, I'm thinking about uh, some of the comments from the book. Such persons could be cared for. He's talking about the poor now, I The think. poor now, in what may be called semi-institutions, where they might agree to receive most of the income in kind rather than cash. Oh, that's another aspect you talk about. Uh, they're really infantile. That is, they have to be treated as babies. With the poor is what associated. Bad habits, uh, mm -hmm. immorality. Well, inability to uh, to think ahead, yeah. to plan and save, inability to wind an alarm clock and get up in the morning and go to work. Um, even uh, they were even accused of uh, being uh, orally fixated. <laughs> I don't know. This is a psychoanalytic term. In other words, in the early '60s, right at that liberal moment when we are supposed to be discovering poverty, came the stereotype of uh, that said that poverty really was a psychological condition. It was a syndrome. It was something wrong with these people. And I think that has, you know, that had a lot to do with the fact that the war on poverty didn't get anywhere because nobody was recognizing that poverty is basically a lack of money. So they were reversing something. These people are poor because of these bad attributes, but it's not the bad attributes coming because they're poor. No, they're... Yeah, so it was the reverse. Mm -hmm. So the victim was blamed for his plight. Right, and the bad attributes do get a little bit overgeneralized. I think this is important because the same stereotype of the poor persists today. In fact, today I think we practically demonize the poor as a so-called underclass. We don't look at the majority of the poor. We don't look at the fact that the majority of people in poverty are hardworking wage earners, uh, just earning low wages, or homemakers. And you point out in your book as independently of a couple of young journalists from the Sacramento Bee named Maharaj and Williamson, photographer and a uh, journalist who took a trip across the country in the same way Woody Guthrie did in the 30s on freights. And their discovery of the poor, not the poor stereotyped, lazy, drunk, uh, promiscuous, not that at all, which of course a code name for black, of course. Mm -hmm. Not that at all, but hardworking people who lost what they had returning Vietnam vets and others, families on the move, and absolutely devastated. And you have several good cases there of them. And yeah, well, I was so amused. that's the part that hardly, hardly makes it. You, I'm sorry. Oh, U.S. News and World Report, uh, which is a quite conservative magazine, had an article about a year ago about poverty today. And they had to show these hardworking people who'd lost their jobs or had a medical emergency. And they had to admit, and it was very funny when they had to say this, uh, that maybe there was something wrong with our idea of the poor as a bunch of um, people on welfare who keep just having more babies to stay on welfare, that they had to write it, admit in print that they'd gone too far with that stereotype and it couldn't explain anything anymore. So we're talking about a variety of myths and stereotypes, and you're also touching other 
almost, almost funny aspects that there was a certain guilt, had been, maybe just on the part of the middle class, that also deals with the, the heavy, heavily laden. And therefore, mm -hmm. even physically, the fitness mm -hmm. program came out of this too. You point certain yes. aspects of lifestyle that I find very funny. Well, the professional middle class is a very anxious class, even though it is mostly quite affluent. And if you're, if you're rich, you know your children will be rich too if you just leave them your money. Uh, but in the professional middle class, you feel that your, your kids have to start all over again, go through that long climb from pre-K to graduate school. So there's a huge anxiety about going soft, about being spoiled uh, by affluence uh, and losing that, that drive. And one of the, I think, ways that comes out <laughs> is in, uh, you know, in, in the early 60s, it was a diet fixation, which was pretty much localized in the upper middle class. And now it's a fitness fixation. And I think that's a way of saying, look, we're still tough. Uh, and, you know, it's healthy, too. I'm just saying you can interpret it as a way of saying we can resist all this affluence and we're not self-indulgent. Yeah. I'm thinking just as you have uh, your, for your opening paragraph, the one you read, about there seems to be a self-centeredness more than there was far more than ever before. Same time, what I call lazy journalists use the phrase limousine liberals, which, of course, is an archaic phrase. It never was true to begin with. It was very few in number. <laughs> but that's we come back to the uh, the uh, media itself. Well, this is a this is a that. right wing stereotype and a right wing myth that shouldn't last, I would hope. But it's the myth that America has a liberal elite that is very very powerful and all over the place, uh, and that really in some of the right wing writings that becomes the whole ruling class of America. But therefore, you should say right wing uh, writings. I think almost all all of that is mass media is so scared of being of the L word, as we know, in this last incredible campaign, that they lean way over backwards the other way. This is one of the ironies, of course. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, no, nobody should be worried about a, I mean, a liberal elite. Remember George Bush campaigning against Dukakis as a, an elitist? Uh, George Bush from Yale and uh, the uh, ruling elite of New England? I mean, this is, this is just a easy so smear. So we're talking about uh, we're going improvising here around the book that Barbara Ehrreich wrote, and the book has so many uh, aspects to it that we're touching just a few of them. Fear of falling, and the very title itself, studied middle class, a fear of what? Uh, the fear of losing that status. And losing that toughness that the middle class associates with achievement. A real fear of becoming soft or permissive or... Uh, you know, which leads, I think, to a lot of um, macho posturing in this class. And so the word permissiveness, that was a key. That was a word back in the post-60s, in the 70s, with a villain, say an obvious villain being Benjamin Spock, Dr. Spock, mm -hmm. permissiveness. That became a word. Yeah, well, this, is, this became the big theory of uh, what's wrong with America in the 80s, that uh, we had just become too permissive a society, that we were too kind to criminals, too kind to uh, welfare recipients. Uh, and I think this, there's no reality to this. In fact, we're, we're one of the most punitive societies on earth in our treatment of criminals. I think only the South Africa and the Soviet Union have a higher percentage of their population in prison. We're one of the stingiest in terms of welfare or aid to the poor. 
So it's a myth, but I think what it reflects is that um, horror of becoming soft or self-indulgent. It's funny uh, how magazines and journals uh, use that, even mis misinterpret it deliberately. The New York Times Sunday Magazine is a perfect case in point. You point out here that in March 1968, Christopher Jenks, now teaching at Northwestern, had an excellent piece here on tensions in American society in the New York Times Sunday Magazine. And he, he spoke of the myth of, of permissiveness, and he also spoke of Benjamin Spock's approach generally. And it was... A, it was a pretty good article. It was an excellent one, as a matter of fact. But the New York Times editor titled it, It's All Dr. Spock's Fault, and he had to fight to even make that a question. So there's a deliberate misinterpretation to what a, a very perceptive scholar wrote. Right. He titled it, Is It Dr. Spock's Fault? And they wanted to change that into a declarative sentence. Because there was a search for how could you discredit the student radicals. What could you say about them? And the, the thing that presented itself, the idea that came to this people involved in the intellectuals' backlash, mm -hmm. was, oh, just say they're spoiled brats. Yeah, and he was saying that these were the rebellion dealt with kids trying to think for themselves and questioning certain aspects of the society. And it wasn't permissiveness. The editors, now we come to the question of, of the leading organs of opinion, journals of opinion, what is being done. So the cards are stacked, is what I'm implying, if you are, too. I think so. I think uh, for a so-called democracy, we have a very narrow band of opinion that normally gets aired. Uh, we, don't, we don't see um, so-called ordinary people. Not, that's not a good word, but we don't see them on our talk shows. We don't invite people who are waitresses or steel workers to comment. Mm -hmm on public affairs. Yeah. We just hear the same yeah. types of people. No, but something is happening, to come to that, whether it be TV or other aspects in which people who are the invisible ones are finding out more and more about the very visible people who run things. Let's hold that remote. Fear of falling. And the subtitle is the <coughs> inner life, and the key word here is the inner life of the middle class. But my guest, Barbara Ehrenreich, and Pantheon, the publishers. Something is popping. Uh, TV has now and then something comes out that's rarely, but once in a while, beneficial, aside from the overwhelming the Niagara's of trivia that you know fall upon us. They're talking about uh, they see, so whether it be in, in the soap operas or they see, or news events or seeing part of Malcolm Forbes' party mm -hmm. on TV, they see how certain people certain habits at least, styles of people. Hey, those, so those are what they look like, you know, to some extent. And uh, so we know more about them than they know about us. Oh, absolutely. That's what Jamie Baldwin said about blacks. Really? Uh, way back in, in Norway. We know more about you than you know about us. <laughs> that, I think it's very, it's very true in terms of class. If I turn on the TV, the chances are about 9 out of 10 that I will see professional middle-class people, they like the Cosbys, a doctor-lawyer team uh, heading up the household. Very few sitcoms about working-class people, and most of them are pretty painfully stereotyped. I even think Roseanne is pretty painfully stereotyped. 
So people who are in a relative elite, who are wealthy or professional middle class, don't have any real notion of how people with less money live. They just have to go, they go along with the stereotypes. Whereas people who may not have any money at all have a very good idea how they live. And information tends to flow one way in this uh, society, down, not up. So what happens to, you say the word ordinary is a word that, you're right, it's a word that says nothing, but the non-celebrated or the non-very well-off person, the blue-collar, Oh, the pink collar. We forgot the word pink collar. Oh, it could be white collar role. these days, too. White collar. And, and are the up against, or those up against it all the way, the poor, there never has been a coalition of them. We're the middle class. That, now, you're asking the middle class to look at itself, too, certain mm-hmm. a segment of it, too. Well, uh, yeah, I'm hoping that my book promotes a little soul-searching in the professional middle class. I hope it uh, promotes some looking at those stereotypes that, that go on and on, and I think which really get in the way of any kind of social change, because if you really believe the poor are these inveterately lazy, crime-prone, promiscuous people, and you really believe that working class is this bunch of um, hard hats um, and, and so on, you don't see any, what's the hope? Why would, you, why would you even work for change? Why would you try to do anything? And I think it, that's part of our profound pessimism as a culture at this moment. Of course, if the cards are stacked by what we read and hear and see daily, then that has to, has to be a breaking through that these people are that way, these people, the poor say, are a certain way because they were up against it to begin with. Why talk about tomorrow? See, instant gratification. You may not eat tomorrow, as you point out. It may not, nothing may be on the table tomorrow. Mm-hmm. And why talk about how the poor don't have, say, enough work ethic when we pay people in this nation so little for their work? I think uh, three thirty-five an hour is disrespectful to pe- to human labor. That's the minimum wage. What I find interesting about your book, in addition to all this, is the is is the uh, way class. We come back to class again. Is set up in the very beginning. You're pointing out as a you know a track system is that certain kids are going to go to certain schools, others are going to go to vocational schools. Ed Sedlowski, who's a steel worker and very hip to everything, Ed points out in one of the conversations with him, if I can find it on page 260, Ed points out that when he was a kid in school, he remembers this very, very specifically. When you're a kid in school, about 12 and 13, the questionnaire would say, what's your name? You say, Sedlowski. What's your dad do? You put down steel worker. Well, the council then puts you into industrial arts, a fancy name for you know what. That's where me and my pals wound up, making little holes in glass to make chimes, or shoe boxes and junk like that, little ashtrays. You're your father for Christmas. Well, if your name was something else, nice ring to it, and your father happened to be a doctor or a businessman. They gave you a business administration course or fine arts. Now, all the kids I wound up with were in the steel mills, and those few other special ones, they wound up as doctors and lawyers and corporate heads. So mm-hmm. we're talking about that in the very beginning, aren't we? Oh, yeah, and in that way, classes become more like castes, where it goes from one generation to another. And as we as we cut off access to higher education, say with the 
rollbacks in financial aid and student loans under the Reagan administration, um, again, the doors shut in the faces of people. Social mobility closes off. You know, it's funny how that works out even in medical school. You point, this is a very interesting thing you point out. Uh, um, organic chemistry <laughs> is an, a mandatory course for med students. Now, organic chemistry is a very fascinating course, but it has little to do with treating people specifically, you know, uh, especially those up against it. Uh, but organic chemistry is something a little beyond the ken of those who haven't had quite the same kind of academic training as others. Now, that person who hasn't had that kind of, meaning people from a lower, I use that phrase, lower class, would then be screened out. Oh, yeah. Well, that's, uh, unfortunately, the, the professions have these walls around them, which were erected early in the century when uh, the American professions took their modern form. But the walls, these hurdles you have to go over, like organic chemistry in case of medicine, were not put there at the time because it was something you had to know to treat a patient. They were put there. And, and I can document this intention, too, historically. With, with the idea of keeping out uh, what they called cruder people. That was a motivation. They stated it. And we still have these barriers. I mean, I think if you want to screen people out from the profession of medicine, you should do it on the basis of how do they interact with human beings who are ill, but not on the basis of do they understand the quantum chemistry of covalent bonds. It has nothing to do with the practice of medicine. So we have a built-in... Uh, snobbery, built-in walls uh, to, keep, to maintain the professional middle class as an elite. So, you know, it, it's funny talking about uh, the middle class, the blue collar, the pink collar, the white collar, and uh, the beating that trade unions are taking these days, and an absence of history, too, on the part of the young. Like, yes, some of the young kids are anti-union, how many hours a week do you work? Say 40 hours a week. How'd the 40-hour week come to be? I think the boss was... Then they have, they don't know the guys were hanged for that. <laughs> hey, mm -hmm. So that's the aspect. But mm -hmm. there's something that tells me they're brighter. That is, those up above are brighter than given credit for. That's why they've won or have been winning. There's no longer the goon with the, with the hammer to break, to beat up a picketer. Oh, no, yes, need, there is. Well, you don't need the goons anymore. Now well, you got labor consultants. you got labor consultants, but you also have some of the old brass knuckle approach. I'm just speaking from my own experience, and I do want to write an article about this sometime. Just in the last two years, three New York area union organizers of my acquaintance were beaten up by company goons. Um, so that kind of thing still goes on. It's like the 1930s, but uh, uh, it's not... It's not news. I'm not denying that guys mm -hmm. are beaten. I'm saying there's an additional approach that you refer to as nonviolent social control. And that, to me, is the handsome... I've run into these guys. You have two. I'm sure. Three-piece suits, guys smoking a pipe and rimless glasses. Very sweet. Mm -hmm. They are labor consultants, mm -hmm. but they're the same as goons. Yep. yep. Well, that's what mm -hmm. I meant. So that yep. technique that's more subtly used. 
Right. Not that. Yeah, it's subtle, but it's it's <laughs> what they'll do when a union comes to a, a plant is they'll they'll bring in workers one by one or two by two into the office and kind of brainwash them, psychoanalyze them uh, until they they don't uh, feel any uh, so they lose the nerve about the union. And the 80s have been a heyday, you know, for uh, these union-busting consultants. One of the reasons why the working class is losing ground. Lawyers are getting rich doing it, too. Uh, ever since the air controller strike was broken, the first year of Reagan's administration, and now, you know, the 11,000 blacklisted, seasoned air controllers. And so we speak of near misses and plan. I always wonder, uh, what do you think of this, Barbara? I was curious. Uh, it's hard, it hardly makes the news, and 90% of America cheered Reagan when he broke the air controller's strike, the overwhelming majority. There are 11,000 seasoned air controllers, not blacklisted, not working, but Reagan said they'll never work again for the government, and that promise was kept. Most of America applauded. Since then, we read items about near misses and crashes, and very often, the phrase used unseasoned air controllers, overworked air controllers, nurse. So then I start thinking, maybe we'd rather risk death, life and death, than admit that a president who was popular was dead wrong. Mm -hmm. So maybe we're slightly necrophilic as a society. See, I'm going now overboard now. <laughs> See, how far do we go? See, and you start with, but that never makes the news. Whenever you hear that, the fact that 11,000 seasoned air controllers blacklisted is not in the news when we hear near misses and crashes in unseasoned air controllers. That's well, I part. was once on a plane when a pilot said the reason we were so delayed is because of Reagan busting Paco. A pilot oh, said yeah. that? Oh, yeah, right. No, but what, when do we ever get news about labor? I mean, labor coverage has fallen off, or it's all in the business section of the newspaper. I have talked to so many people. When I mention the coal miner strike, they say, oh, yeah, in Siberia. No, the coal miner strike in the United States, 65,000 miners out, thousands arrested every day, nonviolent civil disobedience. I think that, you know, that that's a... That's an amazing story, but we don't read it. It's, it's You're referring to the, pit, the Pittston strike mm -hmm. that has many unions you know, going along and backing it. Hardly is in the news. You see, solidarity is a word we associate with Poland, and rightly so, and that's good. There's something called solidarity here, but that, that's non-news, or if anything, mm -hmm. an, it becomes anti. Now, working people can about. be heroes if they're in Poland or the Soviet Union. <laughs> here, they're going to be invisible. You raised the point about where's the labor news. Now, the, here again, we come to the stacked deck. We have to face the fact that the cards are stacked, that you pick up any paper, whether it be the local papers or whether it be the New York Times or the Post, or certainly Wall Street Journal, name alone does that. There's a section. A whole section, half the paper, says business or industrial news. There's, there are TV shows, and there are special business TV shows. So we're talking about uh, TV news, but is there a labor section? And then I say, is there a labor column? And finally, is there a labor columnist? It's generally some kid assigned to do extra work to cover if there's violence somewhere in a picket line. Yeah, so the and then it's stuck. more like a crime story yeah. in the way it's covered. And you, you don't get 
human interest stories on the strikers. You don't get to see them as human beings. What you're likely to get when you do get labor coverage is something about the inconvenience caused to other people, period. So we don't get to see our blue-collar and pink-collar working class in their moments of heroism and struggle. So where does this leave us? I mean, now we come, we're coming you know, toward, the, uh, toward the latter part of your book, the book of Barbara Ehrenreich, Fear of Falling. It, you speak of this middle class, and it's uh, not probing itself, and change in it. Has there been a change? When you say, was it ever that as enlightened as it was? No, I, I wish I could say, yes, it was, and we could just get back on track. I think, though, that there was a definite decline in the 80s. That, and here's the here's the the symptom of it that I think is most disturbing, that in the 80s there was a stampede on the college campuses of kids leaving things they might have been interested in, English, mathematics, whatever, and going all into things they thought they could get money in as fast as possible, marketing, management, uh, business. Uh, huge. I mean, we, we lost 50% of our English majors, 50% of our natural science majors. We just, doom as they all went into uh, business-related subjects. Now, I think that that does say something about, I don't know how to put it, the degeneration of the professional middle class, leaving but its own professions and leaving at least those professions had some kind of ethic of public service. And, some can, and another thing is, as you point out, as they left the, fi uh, the uh, humanities and the liberal arts to head into BA, computer programming, whatever else might be the case, ledger work, they became more illiterate. I mean, the very thing they're proud of is a sense of grace, and they mm -hmm. speak of a, a vulgarity on the part of the poor or something, or a gaucherie on the part of, whereas here, so some of the kids making 60, 70,000, you point out the guy didn't know who, they had no idea who Proust was when he was talking. That's a small thing. In fact, I've run across a number of people who gone through all the schools, MBAs. The illiteracy is astonishing. Because that doesn't count for yeah. status in the yeah. uh, yuppie <laughs> levels today. What counts for status is how you read a menu. I mean, it's funny because it was the poor who were accused of being so illiterate and being so concerned with their own immediate gratification. I would say it's the elite. I would say a uh, perfect example, though, uh, of... Uh, that kind of self-indulgence that the poor blamed with would be the Malcolm Forbes party or something like that, that the, the characteristics we project onto the poor are what actually yeah. exist among the very rich. Improvidence, can't think of the future. American corporate leadership is always accused of being incapable of thinking beyond the next quarter. The Malcolm Forbes party, I suppose, is the great symbol of something else that other people not quote-unquote, the elite are accused of, and that is vulgarity. Vulgarity, Vulgarity right. is the word. And so, then <laughs> I, and so <laughs> I, was, I told you before, my dream, uh, when someone said to me on one of these shows, wouldn't, I'll bet you would love to have been invited to it. And I said, yeah, as a Peter Sellers type of Moroccan waiter spilling all the, you know, the Dom Perignon and Oscar de la Renta dresses and people hollering, how disgraceful, things like that. <laughs> you know, or spilling some sauce on, very thick sauce, good thick <laughs> sauce on, on Henry Kissinger's collar. <laughs> what goes on here? I would like, that was my dream. 
That so, sounds like fun. <laughs> that 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 would have been a fear of falling. The inner life of the middle class. We've come to what's to be done. Pantheon, the publishers. There is a middle class young who are split. That is on social issues. You'd say liberal. That is on abortion issues or on uh, race on matters of that sort. But on bread and butter issues, wages, hours, labor, conservative. These are those we call a lot of them call libertarians. Mm-hmm. Which has which has spread. We have that group. Mm -hmm. You have that group, don't you? Mm -hmm. And what's going to happen with them? Well, I. I don't know, Stets, but the, I think there is a lot of financial pressure on the professional middle class, too, and we've been speaking of these as very affluent, comfortable people. They are relative to the median or the average uh, income family, but still you read about the, the man who can't support his family on $115,000 a year. That's an actual article. I clipped that. Yeah. Even one writing about that couldn't support his family on $200,000 a year. Because, you know, even here, there, there are pressures. Uh, college tuitions at the elite private schools are now above $20,000 a year. Uh, if you have two people working in the family, you might have to have, uh, in this class, a housekeeper or something. So there, there's fear that the um, housing costs will soon be at reach because the very rich can bid up the costs yeah. of housing. Uh, I've got to no admit, it's hard for me to feel sorry. I said, maybe go to another school. It's really tough for me. But the more important aspect that you point out in your book is those people who are not improvident, the opposite, those thrifty, hardworking people whose lot becomes tougher and tougher and tougher as they join the have-nots, closing the have-somewhats who are becoming the have-nots. And that's where the divide is widening mm -hmm. more than ever. So that's what we're talking about. So what's to be done? That's Toward the end of the book, you speak of a look at self. Uh, M I call MC, I put down here. Middle-class discovery of self. Well, I would hope that the professional middle class would overcome its stereotypes, would see that those things that are causing its anxiety in many cases, that you could actually do something about. We don't have to pay 20000 or $25,000 a year for college education. We should, instead of holding tight to, a, to this little band of privilege the professional middle class is in, it should be looking out and saying, well, how do we change that? This is hard on everybody. Uh, I mean, everybody worries about Catastrophic illness, for example, in healthcare. Well, there's a there's a basis for some kind of common ground between a major huge majority of and people. And of course, the environmental issues. Environmental, too, you know. yeah. There are certain common grounds that span every aspect, and you're hitting the uh, national health, and, you know, anti-catastrophic illness insurance, mm -hmm. in which the government plays a role. Mm -hmm. I guess we're the only industrialized nation outside of South Africa that doesn't have national health insurance. That's right, that's right. So I think that there is an, a solution to some of these anxieties, but it would mean for the professional middle class would have to reach out and would have to look a little more realistically at who else lives in America. Yeah. And who, who calls the shots. Yeah, and the other thing is obviously we have to turn around the government programs that have 
or policies that have been making us a more and more polarized society. I mean, Reagan just redistributed the wealth to the rich. So of course we're becoming more and more unequal. Uh, we just had Bush uh, decide to give another tax break to the rich, which will make us more and more polarized as a society. If we want to go down that road uh, to becoming increasingly like a third world nation in the huge degree of inequality, well, we, we will with policies like those that the Republicans have brought us. And the other possibility, the alternative then? The alternative, <laughs> I, I used to think this was too radical to say, but since Ronald Reagan did it in the other direction, I'll say redistribute the wealth downwards, yes. tax the rich, uh, tax the corporations more, and then let's expand some things like access to education that do make uh, social mobility a real possibility. I mean, the old phrase used years ago, never, never caught, was called progressive taxation. Mm -hmm. Progressive, that somehow that's gone. Well, we've abandoned that. We've but there's potentially, you're right toward the end, Barbara Ehrlich, no limit to the demand for skilled, creative, and caring people. Also, you're talking about work. If, if it weren't, if making it and status weren't the key, way back, as it appears to be now, but the delight in what you're doing, as well as, of course, making a living doing it, there could be the redistribution, it seems to me, you pointed, of the kind of work that is done, too. Right. If we could get away from totally materialistic measures of human value, you know, if we could remember what was once the pride of the professional middle class was that uh, good work, creative work, work with some autonomy. There's you know, plenty funny, of that to go around. It's funny how this all, as, as we're saying goodbye now, how this all adds up as part of a circle here. Even the idea of craftsmanship itself. It, it's funny, it seems unconnected yet connected. There was once a pride in something called craftsmanship, standards of work. But if gross national product and making it big becomes it, the quality means little. It's what you get. So even that's involved in it, too. Yep. All this is... All this is involved in the book and is there in fear of falling by my guest, Barbara Ehrenreich. It's called Inner Life of the Middle Class and Pantheon the Publishers. And thank you very much. Thank you, Studs.